0: capacities we would like to have him talk to us now he's going to discuss the subject how are Jehovah's Witnesses different from other religions Brother the well it's a pleasure to uh, be with you this afternoon and we finally made it
1: to meet together in this Kingdom Hall the matter of wondering how Jehovah's Witnesses are different from other religions comes to the fore because there are a great many religions in the earth today, even a great many claiming to be Christian, and of these, many claiming to be the only true uh, religion. And uh, so the question is, and how do Jehovah's Witnesses fit in to this picture? In uh, Malachi chapter 3, a prophecy was made indicating very clearly that uh, there would be a group who would be known as Jehovah's true servant. This is Malachi chapter 3, and we read also here that certain things would identify or be characteristic of those who would have Jehovah's approval. Reading from verse 16, it says at that time, those in fear of Jehovah spoke with one another, each one with his companion, and Jehovah kept paying attention and listening. And the book of remembrance began to be written up before him, For those, now notice here, in fear of Jehovah, and for those thinking upon his name. Here we outline two characteristics that must be identifying characteristics of those who have pleased Jehovah. They have to be in fear of him, that is, submit themselves to his way of thinking and his standards of righteousness. And finally, they have to be thinking upon his name. And reading on, it says they will certainly become Mine. Jehovah of Armies has said at the day when I am producing a special property, and I will show compassion upon them, just as a man shows compassion upon his son who was serving him. And you people will again certainly see the distinction. What distinction? Between a righteous one and a wicked one. Between one serving God and one who has not served him. And this makes it very clear that uh, in this time that Malachi is speaking about, the identity of those serving God and being accepted to him would come to the fore. Well, we think of Jehovah's Witnesses as a group of Christians who uh, began their, you might say, modern-day history from the days of Brother Russell in the 1870s, and
0: uh, who separated themselves uh, from uh, the other churches, uh, perhaps because uh, they... Uh, came out with the Bible truth that the soul is mortal, that there's uh, no eternal torment, that there was no Trinity, that there's one
1: God who created us all, and that Christ Jesus was his only begotten Son and first
0: creation, and that Holy Spirit was the invisible active force
1: of God. And then we may say, well, as back in those days Brother Russell saw that there should be no clergy-laity distinction in our congregation. Jesus had said to his followers, you are all brothers. And uh, perhaps it's because we believe that Christ's return would be invisible, whereas a number of those so-called Advent uh, groups believed in a visible return of Christ. Uh, We might think it's because we're separate from the world, and that makes us distinct. Perhaps it's because we accept the Bible totally Well, there are many religions that claim to believe in the Bible, although a good many churches consider the Bible merely a historic record of God's people and a record of how God dealt with his people in the past, but not necessarily an infallible inspired guide for us today.
0: But these various characteristics that I've mentioned, while they
1: could identify or be part of the identity of the one true religion, We will find, in a study of the history of modern churches, that a good many other religious bodies have tried, have have held to some of these same Bible truths that we mentioned, or have endeavored to get back to primitive Christianity in one way or another. So the question we have, is it true that Brother Russell, back in the 1870s, began his study of the Bible apart from the churches? and uh, Church dogma, and then alone or with his immediate associates discovered these Bible truths that I mentioned, and discovered the importance of being separate from the world, separate from the churches. That's the impression that perhaps uh, we've had and perhaps even given ourselves, but the Proclaimers' book shows that it happened quite differently, that a good many others have held to many of the Bible truths that we hold to today, that some have held to these Bible truths when we didn't do it. For example, uh, uh, a point uh, back uh, in, in 1962, when we first really acknowledged, uh, after a good many decades, that the superior authorities in Romans chapter 13 were not Jehovah God and Christ Jesus, but the nations of the world. Now, others have held to these We might even go back in in our history, back to the early 1900s, and we'll find that Brother Russell had uh, developed and presented a view of uh, the New Covenant, different from what we hold to today. And quite a number left the organization back then, holding to what we today accept as the truth regarding the New Covenant, that the New Covenant was made by God, through Christ Jesus, with the anointed congregation, 144,000. So, we haven't always had doctrinal accuracy on every point throughout our history. And we haven't always had a proper understanding of, perhaps, our relationship to the nations and Jehovah God. Nevertheless, throughout our history we can see Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to fear God, have tried to be concerned with His name and today stand clearly identified as being Jehovah's true servants. Now, the question is, though, how are we different, in what ways are we different, and are these scriptural? Other religious groups have had many of these features, as I mentioned. The great apostasy that occurred after the death of the apostles brought great darkness in matters of religion. And you might say, one of the things that the Apostle Paul warned about in um, 2 Thessalonians, which is probably good to just keep in mind here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, said here in verse 3, Let no one seduce you in any manner, because it will not come, speaking of the apostas or the presence of our Lord, the return of our Lord, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness gets revealed, the son of destruction. Now notice how this false uh, man of lawlessness is described. He, sets him up, he has set up an opposition, lifts himself up over everyone who is called God or an object of reverence, so that he sits down in the temple of the God publicly showing himself to be a God. And this mystery of lawlessness, Paul said, would flourish after the death of the apostles and would continue to dominate the religious field right down until the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what was the characteristic, uh, you might say, identity mark was they would set themselves up over God or anyone called God or an object of reverence. We say this man of lawlessness is the clergy of Christendom, and certainly that's true, but the characteristic is that they put themselves up over God's law. After the death of the apostles, this began to creep in in a very subtle way. We've read about Polycarp, who uh, endeavored to hold fast to the scriptures on certain issues and was put to death because he refused to compromise. And then later there were certain movements within this by none a worldly uh, congregation claiming to be Christian, Uh, these um, men were trying to be more acceptable to the world. Now they were sincerely trying to preach the good news of God's kingdom and also trying to make disciples. But they thought it would be most effective if they could formulate Christian teaching in terms that could be understood by the worldly philosophers of their day. And since Greek philosophy philosophy was the dominant philosophy, men tried to formulate Christian teaching by using Greek philosophical terms. Well, the result was, instead of Christian teaching properly transmitted in the Greek terms, the Christian teaching was corrupted by these Greek philosophical terms. They didn't follow Paul's word in trying to explain uh, spiritual matters with spiritual words, but they tried to explain spiritual matters with fleshly words, and that's where the apostasy began to break away. The uh, history tells us about the effort to, uh, uh, to get away from Jewish influence, and so the decision was, well, they wanted to get away from any recognition of the Sabbath, although Christians weren't under the Sabbath, so they zeroed in on the first day of the week, being according to their reckoning the day of the resurrection of our Lord, they called it the Lord's Day. And then instead of keeping the Lord's evening meal once a year on the eve of the Passover, which they thought would be too, too Jewish friendly, they tried to put that on the first day of the week, and then instead of having it one day a year, as was Jesus' intention when he inaugurated it, they uh, tried to have it quarterly, or monthly, or weekly, uh, calling it, uh, that people would have to go to communion. And there were those who objected to that in the third century, and uh, they were excommunicated from the church. They were known as the Quarto Decimans, which objected to this on the basis of the fact that they were putting human ideas ahead of God's Word. Well, it wasn't long until other thinking had come into the picture as well. Theophilus of Antioch, who had tried to uh, formulate three aspects of God, his ideas were picked up. He used the word Trinitus, or Trius rather, and his uh, friend down in Africa, uh, Tertullian, in Carthage there, used the Latin trinitus. Uh, But this led to a thinking not only of three aspects of God, but also of three persons in God. And so the Trinity doctrine was born and uh, adopted during the 4th century uh, by the uh, Catholic Church, which at that time was under the headship of the Emperor Constantine. So we see this effort being put forth
0: to get away from Bible teaching, and great darkness came. But down through the centuries, there were various sincere men
1: who were fighting for Bible truth. And and we had the uh, Waldenses on the one hand, uh, following up uh, later on after the Quarto Decimans. And these people held fast to God's word to the degree that they could understand it. Even Luther in the 16th century, when he started his thorough searching of the scriptures, he saw clearly that the doctrine of the immortality of the soul and the doctrine of eternal torment, as well as the Trinity, these teachings were wrong. And he called the doctrine of the eternal torment uh, and the immortal soul part of Roman of Rome's uh, dunghill of decretotes. He, he wasn't very fine and delicate in his way of expressing himself, but the point is, Luther saw these truths. But then, because of fear of man and a desire to say, well, we, we don't want to break away from the Church, his friend Philip Melanchthon went to Augsburg, where they formulated the Augsburg Confession, compromise, and went right back to adopting the immortality of the soul, eternal torment, and the Trinity. So it shows you how when men fall away from the Bible, then they're not going to be led into truth. William Tyndale, who was active in the Church of England as a translator of the Bible, stated in putting departed souls in heaven hell and purgatory you destroy all the arguments wherewith christ and paul prove resurrection he saw that clearly and this was part of a great fight among bible scholars over several centuries to push for the teaching of the mortality of the soul and other teachings also on the way The Socinians in Central Europe and early part of Western Europe uh, denied the Trinity and endeavored to establish the unity of God. And people who followed after them were sometimes called Unitarians because they preached that there was one God. Well, then these Unitarians got led astray because some of them, in their efforts to prove that Christ wasn't part of the heavenly Godship, they then said that Jesus was just a human son of God. And so the Unitarians got a bad name for themselves, and the Catholic Church made good use of that, classifying anyone who denied the Trinity as a Unitarian and a denier of the fact that Jesus was the heavenly Son of God. But Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century denied the Trinity. He was a Unitarian, and yet he certainly spoke about uh, Christ Jesus as the heavenly Son of God and spoke also really about the invisible presence of Christ. So this wasn't something Brother Russell discovered. Many men, centuries before, realized that Christ's return had to be invisible to carry out all that the prophecy said concerning it. Newton also said that God put time prophecies in the Bible not to make men prophets to credit themselves, but only to help them understand when fulfillment was underway. And he also made another statement in... uh, Uh, brochure that he prepared on the books of Daniel and Revelation he said the messianic kingdom would never have full sway until the great multitude of Revelation chapter 7 was gathered out from all nations prior to the end of the world well that was quite discerning back there we didn't understand that until 1935 But he had that understanding, so there were a great many men being moved by God's Word and the power of God's Spirit in those days. In the 1700s and 1800s, there was uh, a great breaking away from uh, the uh, established churches in an effort to get back to primitive Christianity. That's because uh, the main Protestant churches, the Lutheran Church in Europe, and the Dutch Reformed Church, and the Swiss Church, and then the Anglican Church, as well as the uh, Reformed Church of Scotland or the Presbyterian Church, maintained the same basic structure and teachings that the Catholic Church had, with only small variations. And so men broke away from these
0: churches. For example, the... uh, Uh, Anglican Church had formed within it uh,
1: separatist groups called the Puritans or the separatists. And uh, then uh, the Methodists, John and Charles Wesley started the Methodist movement, which originally was a movement within the Anglican Church but became a breakaway. They were trying to get back to primitive Christianity. And uh, they endeavored to just use the Bible as the basis for their beliefs. But they got hung up Uh, after a period of time Uh, hanging still on to the trinity and the immortality of the soul, and later on uh, they became a part of the world, and although they had no clergy-laity distinction in the start, eventually they went to having bishops ordaining uh, clergymen, so they had a clergy class. And then from the Methodist, uh, from the Anglican Church, the Baptists broke away, and from these various Baptist groups Uh, the Congregationalists uh, and Pentecostals and other groups broke away all in a sincere effort to get back to primitive Christianity and uh, these stirrings brought about a great deal of debate both in England and the United States back in uh, the latter part of the 18th century there were great debates on the fact that the soul was mortal and not immortal even the Anglican uh, Archbishop Watley of Dublin uh, was an outspoken defender of the mortality of the soul. So what I'm getting at is it wasn't just Brother Russell's discovery. These things were there. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Jacob Blaine, who was uh, a Baptist uh, minister up in Buffalo, New York, wrote a book in which he explained that there were 200 clergymen of his acquaintance that had been expelled from the pulpits in the eastern part
0: of the United States for denying that the soul was immortal. And uh,
1: that is a great deal of activity. And down in Philadelphia, there was a former Baptist uh, minister by the name of Henry Grew, who had left the Orthodox Church and was an independent preacher. He produced
0: a pamphlet called The Intermediate State and this was long before Brother, several decades before
1: Brother Russell was born. And this booklet had basically all of the arguments that even we use today from the Bible to prove that the soul is mortal, and that at death uh, one does not go on to uh, live either in heaven or hell. Well, another man by the name of George Storrs, who was very influential in working with Brother Russell. Uh, was a Methodist preacher at the time. He was on a train from New York to Boston and he found one of these pamphlets on the train and read it. It disturbed him a great deal because he never thought about whether the soul was mortal or not. And having read this, he made a study now for three years to decide because he realized it was going to cost him his position in the Methodist Church if he denied the immortality of the soul. So then he wrote three letters which are excellent treatises on the subject, and sent them to three Methodist preacher friends of his. And they said he should pursue this matter. So he reworked this material and expanded it and gave six sermons in a church up in Albany, New York, although he himself was stationed in Brooklyn, and uh, then produced this, these six sermons in a publication which was distributed in over 200,000 copies before Brother Russell was born. And again, reading through his six sermons, you find all of the arguments and a good many more, perhaps, than we have ever used to prove that the soul was mortal. God's Spirit was working on these men. God's Word was, the truth of God's Word was a powerful force for getting there. As a matter of fact, interesting, uh, uh, according to that time, there were many that were arguing that, well, the idea, of the, immortal, the idea of eternal torment is contrary to God's justice. And George Stores made this interesting statement even in his third letter that he wrote. I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not eternal torment is contrary to God's justice or not. He said, prove to me that the scriptures teach the immortality of the soul, and I'll work this other problem out. But obviously the scriptures didn't teach it. And uh, uh, the whole concept of of Jehovah punishing someone throughout all eternity for something that they did for a limited period of time obviously is contrary to God's justice. But a great deal of work was done back in these years to establish Bible truth. There was a, uh, as far as time is concerned, uh, Brother Russell wasn't the first one that saw that the Gentile times would end in 1914 and that Christ's return would be invisible. As I mentioned, Isaac Newton talked about the invisible return of Christ, and it was a Second Adventist, a former follower of William Miller by the name of Keith, who showed Brother Russell the emphatic dialogue where the word parousia was rendered presence instead of coming. So these men saw this, too, that we need to be talking about a presence, not a sudden, visible coming as far as Christ's initial return. A bishop in England by the name of Elliot, uh, back in 1830, wrote a, book, a series of books on the Revelation called Her Apocalypta, and uh, among other things in here, he shows that the Uh, Times of the Gentiles, mentioned in the scriptures, or we call it the appointed times of the nations, related to the return of Christ, could possibly come in uh, 1914, maybe 1917, maybe 1923. And uh, about the time of Bishop Elliot, there was another uh, man by the name of Robert Seeley who came to the same conclusion. This was about the year 1830. In 1823, an Anglican uh, clergyman by the name of John Aquila Brown wrote a publication called Eventide, and it appears as though he was the first one, in modern times at least, to put together Jesus' words in Luke about the... Gentile times being fulfilled, and compare these with Daniel's prophecy about the seven times going over him, and he also came to the conclusion that uh, the times of the Gentiles would end maybe 1914 and 1918. Now, the problem with this, and the question with this, was when did the Gentile times begin? Using the prophecy of Daniel, you had to say, well, it began when there was no longer a kingdom uh, uh, succeeding from David, a kingdom of God, on the earth until the kingdom was established in the heavens. Well, some Bible scholars said, well, the time of the Gentiles would begin with the accession of Nebuchadnezzar. And then others would say, well, it would begin with the first captivity when the first captives were taken from Jerusalem, and uh, Jerusalem came under a certain domination by the Babylonians. But uh, it was uh, an earlier associate of Brother Russell, Nelson Barber, who later abandoned the truth for other reasons, who saw that in Ezekiel, Jehovah spoke about Zedekiah removing the diadem and the kingdom being overturned, overturned, overturned until he would come whose right it was and he saw that from Ezekiel 21 that uh, the time of the Gentiles really should begin with the destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, abandonment of the land the desolation of the land which occurred in 60, actually 607 he thought it was 606 back then Brother Russell became an early associate of Barber. Barber published this information in September of 1875. After Brother Russell associated with him, he prepared also an article on the Gentile Times and published it in George Storrs magazine in September of 1876, saying that the Gentile Times would run from 606 to 1914. But again, the Jehovah's Spirit was operating on a number of individuals. Truths were gradually being uh, coming to the fore from various sources. Well, now, what happened to these other religious groups? Even Brother Russell had acknowledged that uh, the Methodists had some truths, the Baptists had certain truths, the, uh, those followers of Calvin had certain truths, but they didn't pull all of these together. Well, Jesus made an interesting
0: point about this when uh, in John chapter 5
1: he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is going to answer a question as to why many of these sincere groups who started out in the right direction hadn't continued to this very day with the true religion. Uh, They were denying that Jesus was really Uh, the true servant of God, and in verse 31 of chapter 5, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. There's another that bears witness about me, and I know that the witness which he bears about me is true. So then Jesus, of course, had the witness of Jehovah God. He had the witness of the Hebrew Scriptures. He had the witness of John the Baptizer. And the works that Jesus did fulfilled Scripture. But then he turned to them in verse 39. He says, you're searching the scriptures because you think that by means of them you will have everlasting life. And these are the very ones that bear witness about me. And yet you do not want to come to me that you may have life. I do not accept glory from men, but I well know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in the name of my Father, but you do not receive me. If someone else arrived in his own name, you would receive that one. How can you believe when you're accepting glory from one another and you're not seeking the glory that is from the only God? And that's the point, that back then those Pharisees rejected Jesus, but he didn't come on their terms, and he didn't come with the glory that they wanted to give or that their learned ones wanted to give. Jesus accepted only the glory from God. Now a good many of these religious groups that broke away from the Anglican Church or from the Baptist or from the other groups, they still had problems because they followed men or they wanted to be accepted by human organizations. In some cases, they refused to abandon favored teachings or pride in their religion in order to accept Bible truths. Or perhaps some of them got stuck on some particular teaching or practice. Uh, An example is the followers of William Miller who were very sincere in their believing in the return of Christ but uh, after his
0: predictions didn't come out and uh, he died, uh, many of these
1: followers formed several different groups known as Advent groups or Second Advent groups and then some of them had special names like the Advent Christian Church and the Worldwide Church of God Advent and the Life and Advent Union and one group with uh, uh, Ellen White had um, decided they wanted to distinguish themselves, so then they settled in on accepting the Seventh-day Sabbath to be kept, and certain dietary regulations. This would identify them. They took the name Seventh-day Adventist. But then later, in order to be more accepted by other churches and communities as a proper religion, they adopted the Trinity, which William Miller hadn't uh, accepted and by this means they became more mainstream but then they froze into a particular set of doctrine and religious customs and they haven't made any progress in Bible study since. Others became uh, focused on a personality and became a cult built around the personality of some very famous preacher. The Campbellites were one example. They were quite united under under, uh, the uh, Campbell father and son and later they changed their name to the Disciples of Christ and then divided into the Christian Church and finally united again with, under the name Christian Church, but they haven't kept to the original sincere effort to get Bible truth. They accepted again the Trinity and the immortality of the soul, the uh, Christian Church, which is a successor of the Campbellites, The latest thing I read about them in the newspaper was about a year ago when uh, They were having uh, a group of the delegates to their national convention to elect the president, and the candidate that got, although he didn't get 51% of the votes, the candidate that got most votes was the one who advocated ordaining homosexuals as ministers in the church. Well, this shows you how far you can go when you abandon Bible teaching and start looking up to personalities or just favorite teachings. There's uh, many examples uh, about uh, religious organizations that have, have done this very thing. The Pentecostals have hung up not only on the burning hell, but also on the speaking in tongues, for example, and certain other manifestations of the Spirit. And that has prevented them from making any further sincere searching of the Scriptures to see whether some of their beliefs are true or not. And, uh, and so it is the, the way that they have gone. The churches, for all of their efforts and with all of their universities, have given in to human teaching. For example, over a hundred years ago, Charles Darwin came out with his uh, theory of evolution. And uh, at first it was rejected because his theory denied the creation of the Bible. But uh, as his teaching began to be adopted by scientists, the learned men of our time, and taught in the universities, the clergy and the religious seminaries also studied the theory of evolution, and because they wanted the glory that men give and wanted to be accepted as intellectuals of this world, they accepted this as a teaching. Many of the uh, clergy today, there are some fundamentalists that don't, but many of the clergy of the main religions of our day have rejected the creation account of the Bible saying, well, the Bible can be spiritually true without being historically or scientifically true. But that's really a lot of nonsense. Either thing is true or it's not true.
0: And something can't be spiritually true and historically
1: incorrect. Then along came Sigmund Freud with his psychology. He denied also the Bible account of the fall of man in Eden, saying that belief in God was infantile, and then he added he rejected the total concept of inherent sin being a problem, saying rather that our problems today, psychological problems and emotional problems, were from some sexual repress of our childhood and from bad relations that children have had with their fathers. So he rejected the Bible account. And then on top of this, the universities of of Protestant Europe began to get into higher criticism. And higher criticism was a dissecting of the Bible and an analyzing of it to challenge that the Bible was God's word, to challenge that it was written at the time that it is said to have been written by the men who are said to have written it about events who are said to have taken place. They say none of these things are true. So they deny the Bible. And to this very day in many Lutheran churches of Denmark and uh, Sweden and Norway and uh, Germany, you'll find the statement, the Bible isn't got words. Of course, in, in the Bible you can find God's word, but they deny the creation, the fall, in eden the account of the flood the virgin birth of christ the resurrection of christ there's not a whole lot left uh, in that case so here's why these churches have fallen away and been led into darkness these churches also have uh, not come to understand the significance of jehovah's name now we're not just talking about words Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. It doesn't really have to be called a rose, but what is needed is for that flower to be identified with its characteristics. So whether we say Jehovah or Yahweh or what it is, we don't know the literal pronunciation of it, but we need to know who we are identifying, and we need to know his characteristics, and we need to hold his identity on high. To be concerned about his name, that's what Malachi said, and that's what Jehovah's witnesses do today. So we see the issue of universal sovereignty, that Jehovah is the supreme God of the universe, his sovereignty needs to be vindicated, his name needs to be sanctified, and uh, we see the importance of accepting the ransom of Christ Jesus, and not just, you know, uh, as a statement of belief, but as an impact on our lives belief in the ransom is not merely a a bumper sticker or a a stick-on label on our door, I've accepted the blood of Christ. It means that we accept Christ's standards in our whole way of thinking, our whole way of life. That's what it means to believe in the ransom. And so Jehovah's Witnesses have also come on this matter of human integrity. We see the relationship of integrity to the issue of universal (laughs) sovereignty. Well now, the other churches today do not see these basic issues. And as a result we see a great deal of confusion. They are part of the world, they give in to human philosophy and modern fads and trends, have accepted the uh, loose immoral standard of conduct of the world, uh, indicating uh, that, well, uh, God is forgiving and if some of these things aren't right, well, he will forgive us. And so Jehovah's mercy and loving kindness becomes an excuse for permissiveness and no limit on conduct. So this is what's wrong with the churches in the world today. Well, now, how is it that the Bible students have continued to be led by Jehovah as Jehovah's witnesses are today? It's not an accident. We won't say it's because Brother Russell or Brother Rutherford or Brother or these men who have been presidents of the society, were smarter than theologians of these other churches, but they have been men who have been sincere, have been loyal to God's word. They have concerned themselves with Jehovah's name, and they have been led in fear of Jehovah. That is fear of displeasing him. Brother Russell's approach to Bible study has been a good example and has been followed right down to our day. Uh, in uh,
0: First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 was
1: an interesting uh, thought here. Because so many people say, well, I know God and I've accepted God. But uh, in verse 3, Paul said, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And this is a very important thing to be known by God, and uh, Paul mentions this very same thing, and uh, it's here in uh, 2 Timothy, chapter two, and verse nineteen. He says all that, speaking about men who deviate the truth from the truth. Uh, Paul writes, for all that, the solid foundation of God stays standing, having this seal. Jehovah knows those who belong to him. And let everyone ma- uh, men- naming the name of Jehovah renounce unrighteousness. So, first of all, Jehovah knows those who belong to him, and what we need to do is to be found known by Jehovah. This was the attitude that Brother Russell had, and th- these scriptures he used a great deal and then of course everyone mentioning the name of Jehovah or naming the name of Jehovah must renounce unrighteousness so it isn't a question of just having a name it's a question of renouncing unrighteousness this is the point when uh, Jesus was talking in John 4 to the Samaritan woman he mentions this point uh, about worship too about it being in harmony uh, with truth and uh, The woman had said to him in chapter 4 of John, verse 20, that our forefathers worshipped in this mountain, but you people say it is in Jerusalem where persons ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you people worship the Father. You're worshipping what you do not know. We worship what we know, because salvation originates with the Jews. Nevertheless, the hour is coming, and it is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father with spirit and truth. Now, note the whole key here. For indeed, the Father is looking for such like ones to worship Him. We have to worship God in the way that He's looking for. So many people today say, I have my religion and I'm satisfied with it. Or you're encouraged, go to the church of your choice. Actually, we should go to the church of God's choice. We should be the kind of people He's looking for. And that's the way Brother Russell looked at it. A scripture that Brother Russell often used, and we had as our days text recently, is Proverbs chapter uh, 3. And Brother Russell realized very clearly it wasn't just a matter of getting doctrinal truth, it wasn't just a matter of being known to be a Bible researcher and to come up with theological explanation of teaching. But rather, as he said in chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 5, Trust in Jehovah with all your heart, and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, take notice of him, and he himself will make your paths straight. Do not become wise in your own eyes, fear Jehovah, and turn away from bad. Well, without being self-righteous, or trying to appear to be holier than others, Brother Russell and his earlier close associates were very sincere and first of all, putting their trust in Jehovah, in all their ways taking notice of him. Not just in Bible study, they realized their entire lives had to be led in harmony with God's will to the degree possible for them, and that the truth should impact on their lives. Another scripture that uh, they realized they had to follow if they were going to increase in an understanding of the knowledge about Jesus Christ is in Second Peter. and This scripture was used many times and it was published in the Watchtower uh, at the time of Brother Russell's death as one of the uh, objectives that he and his associates had in their searching of the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, and reading from verse 5, For this very reason, by your contributing in response all earnest effort, supply to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to your knowledge self-control, to your self-control endurance, to your endurance godly devotion, to your godly devotion brotherly affection, to your brotherly affection love. For if these things exist in you and overflow, they will prevent you from being either inactive or unfruitful regarding the accurate knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just a matter of having a Hebrew and a Greek lexicon and trying to find out a few Bible truths from the Strong's Concordance. It's a matter of all these ways, adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godly devotion, uh, brotherly affection and love. these things had to exist if one was to grow in an accurate knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this has been the attitude that the brothers of the faithful and discreet slave have had down through the decades. The Bible students accepted God's Word at all times, accepted the Bible as God's Word, and when... Uh, The theory of evolution and and Freud's psychology and higher criticism came on the scene. Uh, Brother Russell, in articles in the Watchtower, challenged these on every occasion and defended and championed belief in the Bible and the teachings of the Bible. Those who would become Bible students, after having seen the truth, had to be willing to give up certain favorite teachings they'd had in the church. They had to give up close friends or even prominence and approval that they'd had in the community before if they were going to become Bible students. They had to be willing to preach an unpopular message. They also had to be willing to build their lives around their faith. It wasn't just a matter of going to church on Sunday and hearing a few homilies about the attitudes people ought to have and then to live their lives the way they wanted to. No. The characteristic of Jehovah's servants is the same today as it was in the first century. They had to build their entire lives around their faith and the teachings of the truth. They had to form a bond of union with fellow believers of all different classes, because here were people that were well-educated or poorly-educated, that were rich or poor, people of different national origins or racial origins, cultural origins. And yet those who would be Jehovah's servants, the same as today, had to form a bond of union with their fellow believers. And they had to let the religion, the faith, be the basis for their thinking. It wasn't just a part of their lives, but it had to be their lives. And this is what has distinguished Jehovah's Witnesses from a good many other religions. They had to not be uh, sidetracked by popular religious fads or by intellectual approaches to things, but to stick to God's Word. And to stick to the Bible even though it meant that they would become unpopular. Jehovah's servants have stuck to such things as neutrality, not participating in war. Uh, They have uh, objected to saluting the flag. They've continued their witnessing even though it brought them into jail. They've maintained their neutrality in all countries even though it brought them into prison. They've refused blood transfusion even though it brought them the criticism of practically the whole intellectual world until AIDS came on the scene. And uh, they've also uh, taken a stand uh, not celebrating Christmas or birthdays because they didn't want to give uh, humans uh, attention. So, it is a matter of endeavouring to please Jehovah at all costs. We've also had an organizational structure that harmonized with the Bible. Now, it's varied a little bit, but uh, in all cases, whichever administrative uh, arrangement we've had in the congregation, it's been based on the Bible, and those who would administrate had to administrate Bible principles. In a hundred years, for example, while we had basically the corporate structure with the Watchtower Society, uh, we had only three men serving as president. Uh, Brother Russell, Brother Rutherford, and Brother Nor. and then later Brother Franz came. But then for a hundred years, only three or a little more than a hundred years, four minutes, evidence of the caliber and spiritual quality of these men that had the prominent position in the organization of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now we haven't always had the same administrative arrangement. In the days of Brother Russell, Brother Russell took the lead uh, as sort of the pastor or shepherd of the congregation, him taking the lead in the writing and in the giving of talks and spreading the truth, and then each congregation sort of operated independently with a locally elected body of elders. And that took care of their needs at that time, but even then, In electing elders, it was emphasized that scriptural qualifications had to be the basis for electing elders, and elders in administrating their duties had to follow Bible principles. So, there was no acknowledgement that personality should come in and dominate uh, any part of the organization. Today we have a governing body, and we have bodies of elders in congregations, and then we have in every country a branch committee, and in this way the organization as is administered. It hasn't always been that way. Uh, if we look uh, into the, as I mentioned before, the congregations were fairly autonomous in uh, their looking after their uh, congregation affairs, and uh, then the Watchtower Society was formed, but it wasn't formed to be an administrative body or a governing agency for the worldwide work of Jehovah's people. Originally, Zion's Watchtower was only a, a, uh, an association for a tract fund, to uh, receive funds to uh, give financial support to tract distribution. Uh, and this continued on. Brother Russell was president of the Watchtower Society and acknowledged as the, uh, you might say, the primary shepherd or leader of the Bible students up until his death. And up until that time, the Society was not used as any legal governing agency, nor was its board of directors considered a governing body. After uh, Brother Russell died, Brother Rutherford became president of the Watchtower Society, and uh, the Watchtower Society began to move more in a direction of sort of looking after or administering the affairs of the Bible students and later known as uh, Jehovah's Witness. Brother Rutherford wanted to avoid the thought that one man or one personality was dominating and that the brothers would say, well, Brother Rutherford says this or that. So he felt that the faithful and discreet slave in some way, the anointed body, should be represented by a body. And so in the 1930s, he introduced the term the society uh, and it defined it in our literature as this did not refer to the corporate body, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, but to the body of anointed, the society of anointed ones represented by uh, the responsible brothers at headquarters. And so this was the term that we used during the 30s and early 1940s. But Brother Rutherford emphasized that he wasn't the leader of the organization and. When he died in 1942, Brother Nor became president, nor was it his intention that he would become a leader, but as a responsible elder or overseer in the organization, he carried out his duties. But during the World War II, the question came up when our brothers would be seeking uh, recognition as ministers uh, with regard to being ordained as ministers and exempt from military service. The, The National uh, board for selective service would ask our brothers, well, what is your, or who uh, is your governing body? Who ordains you? Well, we could explain easily enough that we were ordained by Jehovah, and that had the scriptural backing. Well, what is your governing body, or who make up your governing body? And so in the early 1940s, with the conference of Brother Noor and Brother uh, Franz, And uh, even before his death, Brother Rutherford, it it was explained in a letter to the National Selective uh, Headquarters, Selective Service Headquarters, that the governing agency uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses could best be uh, defined as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And uh, so, this term was was used for some years in the yearbook. The Watchtower Society was considered the primary governing agency and uh, often in the literature we would have the term governing body used sort of uh, in relationship to the board of directors of the Pennsylvania Corporation. Nevertheless, all of these board of directors were loyal spiritual men serving Jehovah. It was first really in 1971 at our convention that we learned that there should be bodies of elders and congregations and at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Corporation in uh, the first of October of that year, the board of directors, who also in a sense had been serving as a governing body, began to see that it would be good to separate off their spiritual identity from their legal identity as directors on a corporation. And so that year they decided to define their duties as separately And so they had a board of directors, which functioned still according to the uh, corporate laws, but these same seven brothers were a spiritual governing body, and for them the permanent chairmanship would no longer be the president of the corporation, but this would rotate among all seven brothers of the uh, the governing body. And then they expanded their number from 7 to 12 and eventually to 18, although a number of these now have passed off of the scene. We have about 10 now serving as the governing body. But the point is, in all different ways that uh, our organization has been administered, it has always been by brothers who submit themselves to Jehovah's will, who fear Jehovah, and uh, who follow out Bible. Principles. And the outstanding characteristics of uh, Jehovah's people today and what makes us different is that all through the years we've stuck to God's Word first of all. We've never given in to any human philosophies, intellectual teachings of the universities of our time, or scientific investigations. We hold fast, first of all, that God's, the Bible is God's Word and it is the true scientific, historic, and spiritual account of how things came about. And it's, as uh, Brother Russell always said uh, in his early days, that the truth should always be logical. Uh, George Storrs had an interesting explanation of that. He says, all Bible truth should be logical, and it should be in harmony with reason. But you cannot reason yourself to all Bible truth, such as... How did I get here? What's the purpose of our existence? Who is God? Where did sin come from? You have to have divine revelation. But if you have divine revelation, it should not be contrary to logic and reason. So these are some of the principles that uh, have uh, guided Jehovah's people down through the centuries. And today here we stand on the issue of the ransom. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a corresponding ransom. And then he added, this is to what is to be um, maintained in its own time. And today the doctrine of the ransom is primarily held forth by Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a lot that give lip service to it, saying they believe in the blood of Christ. But the real understanding of the correspondency and how it should affect our lives is held by Jehovah's Witnesses. And as I mentioned before, the issue of Jehovah's name, and it isn't hanging up in semantics as how we spell the name or how we pronounce it, but it is identifying the most important person in the universe that is what counts, identifying his qualities and characteristics and what he requires of us. And the closest we can come to that pronunciation of his name is Jehovah. And it's also faith in the Bible now another characteristic of Jehovah's servants has been they've been they've striven to advance in Bible truth, and as they have grown, they've always been willing to abandon any teaching, no matter how favored to them and how dear to them, if it is found not to be in harmony with the Bible. And inasmuch as the Bible says the path of the righteous is as a bright light that grows brighter and brighter until the perfect day, this is meant not just in the beginning, when they abandoned the churches and came into the truth, as it were, but has been required of us every decade of our lives in the truth, right down to now. That the faithful and discreet slave has continued to search the scriptures, continued to observe the world situation, Bible prophecy, and uh, in this way we are guided by God's word. Now one of the criticisms that our opposers raise against Jehovah's Witnesses is, oh, you people are always changing your religion, are always changing your belief. Well, we're not going to stick with falsehood, falsehood, no matter how treasured it might be, but the example, the very fine example from Brother Russell's day down to our time of the faithful slave has been to keep searching the Scriptures, to accept Bible truth, and be willing to adopt New ways of thinking. We've seen this even in in recent years. Uh, we had, for example, uh, uh, quite recently, the uh, more accurate uh, uh, explanation of uh, the time in which Christ Jesus actually judges those whom He classifies as sheep and goats. And we've updated our understanding and refined it. Uh, it wasn't any great change, but it shows a willingness to adapt to what further research of the Scriptures indicates. Or we've had this explanation of what Jesus meant, this generation, and we've got a more scriptural understanding of it, not something that we have defined ourselves, we say this generation would mean that someone would be at an age of understanding in 1914 and understanding all those things that took place, he would have to still, some of those would have to still be alive at Armageddon. that definition was something we formulated. It's not something we found defined in the Bible. And so this Watchtower made it very clear <clears throat> that yes, it, we're speaking about a generation of wicked ones, a generation of godless people, but we're also speaking about a generation of contemporaries. So we are speaking about a period of time, but we're not going to be able to figure out the day or the hour or the year because uh, Jesus said no one will know the day and the hour. And we have to accept that. So the Watchtower has given us very clear explanation of that. Or more recently, in the May 1st Watchtower, at uh, one time, Brother Russell had adopted or had the same view that the churches of Christendom had that, we had, that the higher powers or superior authorities were the political rulers of the world, and that we had to submit to them in every way unless brought Christians into difficulty with their neutrality during World War I. And so, in the late 20s, uh, because uh, the scriptures make it very clear that the authority uh, is God's servant to punish uh, those who do wickedness and to reward the doers of good, and the brothers had not seen that the political nations had punished those who do wickedly and who rewarded those who do... they put the doers of good in prison, And so it was rather logical back then in the late 20s that we would understand Romans 13 as um, referring to Jehovah God and Christ Jesus as the higher powers. As a matter of fact, there are some modern translations of the Bible who say that uh, we should submit ourselves to the supreme authorities. And so it was in 1962, after observing and studying the scriptures and learning the whole principle, Of relative submission, which we had to learn uh, in the early 1950s in the Watchtower and made a study in several issues, we realized that uh, Paul was referring to the uh, worldly authorities as the the, uh, superior authorities or the higher powers, and that. In an ordinary or general sense, yes, they were allowed by God, they were His servants. They were supposed to keep order, which meant they would punish the doers of evil and reward the doers of good. And uh, that was their job, not that they always did it. But we would recognize them, show them respect, pay our taxes, obey the laws. This became very clear in 1962 and was very important for uh, Jehovah's servants. And uh, then, at that time, uh, of course, there were other problems that our brothers had faced in World War I and World War II and now. And so now we've gotten an article in the May 1st Watchtower, not only clarifying again our position toward uh, Caesar and giving Caesar what belongs to him and to God what belongs to him, but there is a modification in our understanding as to how to view some forms of national service required by governments. And it's good for us to understand that there has been no great change on the part of Jehovah's servants. They're not modifying their understanding of neutrality. They're not modifying what they understand is necessary to give to God. But there has been a change in the world development. In World War One, the uh, idea of any form of alternative service was, uh, anyone who will remember that far back or read about it, If one took any job and relieved someone to go into the army, he was said to be supporting the war effort. And there were slogans all over the country then, uh, take a job here or there, relieve a man to go to the front. And uh, this became very clear to Jehovah's people as we neared World War II that we couldn't have any part uh, in supporting the war effort, either directly or indirectly. And uh, correctly then, in maintaining their neutrality, which was explained in the Watchtower 1939, uh, Jehovah's uh, people, uh, the brothers uh, for the most part, with a clear understanding of neutrality, not only refused to go into the armed services, but also refused to serve in concentration camps, which were an alternative to military service. Perhaps they didn't really support the war effort except in a moral way. So Jehovah's servants have rejected those forms of service. And since World War II, they have also been known to reject that and spent many thousands of years in prison on behalf of their faith. Well, then there's been some changes, of course, on the parts of governments. When uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, would refuse to take alternate service because, in a way, it was in lieu of or would support Uh, the military in an indirect way, some countries had governments, uh, the judges, sentence the brothers to do hospital work or to do road work or to do this. Well, if a judge sentences us to go to prison, uh, we don't tell the judge where we'll serve. We accept that sentence and carry it out as long as the particular work assignment does not go against our conscience and be something that we should give to God. In other words, if a judge had sentenced a brother to make weapons, of course he wouldn't do it. If a judge had had sentenced a brother to go and and serve the priest in the monastery, well, he couldn't do it. But uh, we did accept the sentences of the court and our brothers were obedient prisoners. When our change has come in some parts of the world, and that is that some governments, quite apart from their not engaged in warfare, and quite separately and apart from their thinking of military service, have desired to have from every citizen, in some cases every male citizen, a form of national service for a period of time. And since these have been coming on in more and more countries, the uh, governing body has taken a serious look at this matter and realized that these forms of service, in some instances, are not alternates to military service, they're not a substitute for, they're not an effort to support that in another way, but they're simply a form, another form of taxation. And we've often accepted assignments to do road work or work on bridges or work on irrigation so many uh, hours a week or so many months out weeks out of the year in many African countries we've always accepted community service so what I wanted to point out as you study the May 1st tower, you'll find again it's an example that the faithful and discreet slave is not stubborn it is observing trends and developments continuing to search the Scriptures and making sure that our viewpoint is based on the Scripture, that we give to Caesar what he can rightly claim, we give to Jehovah what he can rightly claim, and as Jesus said on another case, if anyone in authority impresses you to go a mile, go two with him. So, a careful study of the May 1st Watchtower will show that we're still being given food at the proper time. We're being led in the light of truth. The governing body is observing world trends and making sure that we, in harmony with the scriptures, keep our views adjusted to Jehovah's thinking. We don't compromise to the world. We don't give in to the world or its desires. But we want to make sure that we measure up to our obligations to Jehovah. And so this is what we're finding in the activities of Jehovah's people. Something that's very interesting, too, is to see the activities of uh, our brothers uh, worldwide. Uh, In Eastern Europe, there's a tremendous preaching work going on today, and they're getting very fine results. A Finnish brother, who was serving as a circuit overseer in the uh, uh, Caucasus in Russia, reported that in one city in his circuit in 1990, there were 20 publishers. Today, there's over five congregations with 600 publishers in five years, which is a tremendous growth. And he said in in Volgograd, a year ago, there were four congregations, now there's 11. So it's uh, almost tripled in that area. In Moscow, today, there are over 40 congregations, each with an average of 200 publishers. And uh, so they had an interesting experience a sister uh, in the city of Ulanovsk preached to a woman while she was in the hospital and she loaned her her personal copy of the Live Forever book. They don't have that many in this area. And she explained to the woman, now this is not your personal copy. It's mine, but I will lend it to you for a limited period of time. Well, this woman, when she got home, she found the material was so valuable she started writing it all out. And then she asked her relatives to help her and she asked her neighbor to help and her neighbor said no and then the neighbor later came back the next day with her husband. Point is, when they got in touch with this woman again, ten people had helped her copy this book. Eight of them are unbaptized publishers and the other two are regularly attending meetings. So there, there are a lot of good things happening in some of these uh, parts of the world that are really very encouraging to us. And we're also finding that in many parts of the world the truth has reached in various ways and motivated people to start preaching without any connection with the organization. I mean, they start preaching not because they had a kingdom ministry or some elder tell them they should preach. Of course, we had the experience of Ada Lewis in the Watchtower a few months ago, and uh, she started, after reading the harp of God and reading all the scriptures, she preached for several years. Uh, in her area without being in connection with the organization. And uh, here was a case in Ethiopia. The brothers had so many congregations, and then they found out in addition, as they went around the country, they found 90 different isolated groups of interested people. And in most cases, there was not one baptized publisher among them. And here they were meeting regularly. In one case, they would even build a kingdom hall. So the truth moves these people to want to do something about it. We had an experience of a a brother who was in an Ethiopian city on a job assignment, and while he was there, he witnessed to a young workmate, just very briefly, and gave him a copy of the truth book. And uh, then he had to leave the country, and this young man also had to leave the area because of guerrilla activity. He came back, though, he started preaching. He wasn't very tactful. The first thing he did after he'd read the book was gather all the uh, local uh, clergymen and and priests and tell them they should be preaching the Bible truth from house to house. But at least he got some interested people, but they didn't have a church. And those who had churches used to make fun of our young brother. Oh, you don't even have a church. All you can do is meet under a tree. Well, as time went on, letters started uh, coming to Brooklyn. That was the address that was in the literature, the truth book and these different ones who could write English were writing to Brooklyn and asked for them to send someone to help them. So Brooklyn sent the letters to Addis Ababa, our branch office, and there, when they sent two special pioneers out, sure enough, there was this brother and 36 people meeting under a tree, and they were waiting for someone to help them. So this sort of thing is happening uh, more and more. Uh, In uh, one case in Russia, uh, uh, two women, two young women from a small village of about 500 people came into the town of Khabarovsk. And there they met some witnesses and had a brief conversation with them and accepted the Live Forever book. Well, these two young women returned home. They realized, we'd well, we better study the book. Well, how do we go about it? Well, I don't know, but they sat down and read the paragraphs and the questions and looked up the scriptures. Well, then as they were going along, they said, we'd better start preaching. Uh, How do you do that? Well, they didn't really know, but they talked to others and got a Bible study with a family. And uh, when someone else visited there, uh, they found that this family was very interested and in a short time these two original women are baptized and regular pioneers. The first family they studied with are all baptized as well and the father of the family is a ministerial servant. So it it does uh, cause us to rejoice at this. In the capital of Albania uh, a young woman a college student was attending uh, college there and there was another young student who witnessed to her now this other young student wasn't a baptized sister but she had some knowledge of the truth and uh, so uh, this young woman took a publication the one that was being witnessed to went back to her hometown and pretty soon the branch in Albania began to receive letters we need help And uh, we want someone to help us understand these things. And when they sent two special pioneers, they found not only this young college student, but the other young one who witnessed to her and over 50 people attending their meetings, uh, studying and trying to make further progress. So this is happening time and time again. The truth uh, is a force for righteousness, and uh, certainly we rejoice to see things moving ahead in that way. (coughs) even the muslims are are turning uh, to the truth uh, we found uh, a couple of years ago when we were in west africa on a zone trip that uh, muslims were coming in uh, to the truth about the same rate as people from christendom's churches and from the tribal religions of west africa and one of the reasons is perhaps that the muslims in africa are not as fanatic as the arabic muslims that we hear more about today, and in many cases they don't even have the Koran written in their language. But the one thing we've observed ourselves, that the Muslims are very sincere and zealous in the carrying out of their traditions. They carry their fast days right down to the last detail, and the males carry a prayer rug in their briefcase, and wherever it's prayer time, several times a day, they take the rug out and put it on the floor, take their shoes off and kneel down and pray, regardless of who sees them or who's around. So they're very zealous about that. But what Muslims have observed is that their fellow Muslims are not so zealous about being honest with one another. They cheat one another and steal from one another and commit adultery. So this has caused a good many Sincere Muslims to turn to the truth because they see Jehovah's Witnesses practice what they preach. We had an opportunity to work together in the field service with a Muslim couple and their children, a former Muslim rather. Um, and what had happened is this man, a young man, married man, had been very zealous in advancing the Muslim faith and doing everything he could to oppose other religions. And then he had an automobile accident which seriously injured him. And while he was in the hospital, his Muslim friends visited him and said that Allah had caused the accident to test him to see if he would be loyal to him even under adversity. Well, that wasn't really very comforting. And uh, after uh, his friends left, he started thinking about it. He says, that can't be right. He said, Allah knows I'd be faithful to him. He wouldn't have to cause this accident to test me. So. He asked his brother I've got to find the answer to that question and he asked him to make an appointment with a Catholic priest when he got out of the hospital to see if he could get the matter resolved but somehow that never worked out so another relative suggested to him talk with Jehovah's Witnesses they had the answer to the question of this sort of thing so he did and as you know the brothers would explain from the Bible about time and unforeseen occurrence and about the whole cause of sin and the way God was going to remove it and this man made great progress it's a baptized publisher, and we shared in the house-to-house work with he and his wife. And so these people are making progress in uh, many countries. In France, uh, there has been, after the Gulf War, uh, a great disillusionment on the part of some Muslims, especially those living in Europe. And so many Muslims uh, have shown an interest in the truth, Arabic-speaking Muslims, that many of our special pioneers have had to learn Arabic. In order to help these people make further progress in the truth and the society has prepared a booklet on how to learn to read and write arabic to help advance this work in france we heard that a similar thing was taking place in russia a polish circuit overseer working there said that in kazakhstan in kyrgyzstan there were many muslims accepting the truth And again, many of them don't have the Koran in their own language, so that, of course, is a help to them. But there was an interesting case of a woman who had become interested in the Bible truth with the witnesses and wanted to study the Bible. And her husband told her if she would study the Christian Bible, he'd kill her. Uh, Well, she said she wanted to um, learn the truth. That's all. And he said, well, how is that going to be possible? And she said, well, let's study the holy books. Let's study the Bible. Now, we might interrupt here by saying that the Muslims believe that the Bible is also a holy book. And they believe in the Bible, but they believe that the the Koran is the final one and the greater, and that that not only were Adam and and Noah and Abraham and and Solomon and Moses and Jesus all prophets, but that uh, Muhammad is the greatest prophet, that's their thing. And, uh, and so it is that you can really witness to many Muslims by getting the Bible out and showing to them the Abrahamic promise. Well, interesting, uh, this uh, man said to his wife, Well, if you want to study the Bible, we should study the Koran, too. She said, All right. I'll study the Koran with you. But she says, I think we should study the holy books from the oldest ones. Well, she was on safe ground there because the Koran was written several hundred years after the Bible was completed. So she and her husband started studying the Bible together and they were going through the Hebrew scriptures. And he kept complaining, when are we going to get to the Koran? Well, she said, you agreed we'd study the oldest first. So they got through the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek scriptures. By now, the husband is also an unbaptized publisher. So... uh, they're not going to get into the Koran. And uh, this is sort of an interesting example as to how things are are taking place there. Jehovah's Witnesses are becoming known. In the the, uh, publication called the World Almanac, they have had for many years a list of main or major Christian religions. And uh, generally, in years past, I haven't found out just when we first started to appear, but in the older uh, in the almanacs, you wouldn't find Jehovah's Witnesses. You'd find the Baptists, the, the uh, uh, Disciples of Christ, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Mormons, the Orthodox, the Pentecostal, the Presbyterians, the Roman Catholic, and uh, the United Church of Christ. In the World Almanac for 1996, they also have Jehovah's Witnesses listed here. And to give our origin is from the 1870s with Charles Taze Russell. They mention our organization is by means of a governing body and a body of elders. The authority in our religion is the Bible. Special rites are baptism by immersion and the annual uh, uh, evening meal of our Lord. Uh, Our practices, meetings are held in kingdom halls and in members' homes and uh, Preaching is done extensively from house to house. And then under ethics, moral code. Stress marital fidelity and family values. Avoid tobacco and blood transfusions. And under doctrine, God by his first creation, Christ, will soon destroy all wickedness. 144,000 ones will rule in heaven with Christ over all others on a paradise earth. And other things that distinguish Jehovah's Witnesses, total allegiance only to God's kingdom or heavenly government by Christ. They remain politically neutral. The main periodical is the Watchtower magazine, so it's a very fine witness listing Jehovah's Witnesses as among the major Christian denominations, and if one compares it with all the other descriptions of the other religions, we have the description that's in harmony with the Bible. So we rejoice in the privilege that we have. We want to not only continue to know Jehovah and uh, to follow what he requires of us, but as the Apostle Paul wrote here in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 19, this is the foundation of God that stays standing. Jehovah knows those who belong to him. We want to be known of Jehovah and The point, let everyone naming the name of Jehovah renounce unrighteousness. This is what distinguishes us today from all other religions. True, there are many sincere people in all other religions of the world today, and that's why we continue to preach from house to house and on every occasion try to contact people. But we need to urge people to look into the Bible truth. An outstanding characteristic of Jehovah's Witnesses is The Preaching of the Good News of the Kingdom. As a matter of fact, the title of the history book on Jehovah's Witnesses is Jehovah's Witnesses, Proclaimers of God's Kingdom. And from the days of Jesus, the preaching of the truths of God's Word and the events pertaining to the outworking of God's purposes has been an outstanding characteristic. If Jesus hadn't done the preaching work, his presence as the Messiah would have been long forgotten. If the apostles hadn't carried on a preaching work, Christianity would easily have disappeared from the face of the earth. But these things need to be made known. And so Christ Jesus said to his disciples, You will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so it is today. The most important events in human history are taking place. The establishment of the kingdom, Soon the destruction of Babylon the Great and the nations of the earth at at Armageddon and the entering in of the messianic kingdom of righteousness on earth. So certainly these things need to be proclaimed today. So we want to continue to distinguish ourselves as having the right religion, as being concerned with Jehovah's name, as being concerned
0: with his righteousness, and being concerned with proclaiming, God's kingdom
1: is the only hope for mankind. Thank you.